Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Ora Ogumbi. And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. When the United Nations was set up after the Second World War, the hope was that the liberal values on which it was founded would become universal. But despite getting richer, some countries have other ideas for achieving peace and security. And picture the biggest animal ever. You might be thinking of the blue whale. But now there's evidence of a creature more like an enormous manatee that lived 40 million years ago and may have outweighed the blue whale by more than three times. First up, though. Less than three months ago, Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan was accusing his American counterpart, Joe Biden, of conspiring to topple his government. Biden, Erdogan'ı düşürmemiz lazım diye talimatı verdi. Bunu ben biliyorum. Bunu benim bütün halkım biliyor. He was talking up his special relationship with Russia and threatening to prevent Sweden from joining NATO. Şu anda üzerinde hassasiyetle durmam gereken konu but the newly re-elected president seems to be having a change of heart as he reassesses his relationships with Western countries. He's been busy forging new partnerships and rekindling old ones. But it's hard to tell how deeply or for how long he might be returning to the Western fold. Turkey has been an increasingly unpredictable NATO ally for years under its president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Piotr Zalewski is our Turkey correspondent. But recently, and that is to say after his election win earlier this year, in late May, Erdogan seems keen on repositioning Turkey's relationship with the West. And what evidence is there for that? Erdogan has made a string of overtures to the West. He has promised to wave through Sweden's accession to the NATO alliance, which he had blocked for nearly a year. He has stepped up his country's support for Ukraine by openly backing Ukraine's own dreams of membership in the alliance, something he had not done since the start of the Russian invasion. And domestically, he's also been trying to court Western investors by cleaning up the economy, by shelving a rather ruinous policy that saw Turkey reduce interest rates in the face of rising inflation. And he has also appealed to the European Union to resume accession talks with Turkey. And how are all of those overtures, as you call them, landing with the West? Well, they've already paid some dividends. I think 
the most important of these is the sale of $20 billion worth of F-16 warplanes and upgrade kits by America to Turkey, which had been held up by Congress, which now seems poised to take place probably later this year. Along with this, it seems that President Joe Biden may soon welcome Mr. Erdogan, whom he has snubbed since he was elected, to the White House. He and other NATO leaders are also looking to Erdogan to convince Vladimir Putin to reopen the Black Sea to Ukrainian grain exports. Mr. Erdogan will have a chance to try to persuade Mr. Putin to do so when the Russian dictator visits Turkey later this month. And even the EU has made some noises about, quote-unquote, re-engaging with Turkey. So what do you think is going on here? Why this change of tune on Mr. Erdogan's part? Well, these moves are born out of economic necessity rather than a genuine desire for a strategic reset, or at least so it seems so far. Bearing that in mind, European diplomats are playing down any chances of a genuine rapprochement as long as Mr. Erdogan continues to bully and lock up his critics to allow corruption to thrive and to suborn state institutions. Even though Turkey's relations with America are indeed improving, this is because, as with the EU, they were already almost at rock bottom. Mr. Erdogan has attempted to trade his backing for Sweden for progress in Turkey's own stalled accession talks with the EU. But bearing in mind Turkey's own democratic record, nothing of the sort is likely to take place anytime soon. The best that Turkey can hope for with Mr. Erdogan at the helm analysts and European diplomats say, is an upgrade to its existing customs union with the EU. And even that may take years. So what started as a list of reasons for optimism is instead sounding, well, fairly skeptical. Well, you know, there's reason to be optimistic, uh, but skeptical at the same time, because these are welcome moves. But we probably shouldn't overplay the turnaround. This is, again, a policy dictated by necessity less than conviction, and it may not last. And the same thing goes for Turkey's return to economic orthodoxy, which seems only half-baked so far. The end of an exceptionally loose period of monetary easing that saw inflation approach triple digits last autumn has been less dramatic than expected. So the new central bank governor, Hafize Gaye Erkan, has increased interest rates, but only by a cumulative nine percentage points, which is far less than market watchers had prescribed. The lira, meanwhile, the Turkish currency, has lost almost a quarter of its value since the elections, while inflation, as a result, has shot up again after slowing the first half of the year to 48% last month. But there are reasons for optimism, and Western investors are seizing on those signs. Those investors, especially portfolio investors who had stayed away from Turkey for years, are cautiously trickling back in, having purchased upwards of $1.8 billion worth of Turkish stocks since early June. And this is something that had not happened for years. But along the way here in the changing of the tune is a changing on the tune in particular um, about Ukraine. How is all of this sitting in particular with Russia? Erdogan has taken a firmer line on Ukraine joining NATO, telling President Volodymyr Zelensky during the latter's visit to Turkey that Ukraine deserves NATO membership. These are the strongest kind of words we've heard from Erdogan on the subject in some time. 
And so Erdogan seems to have turned more assertive vis-a-vis Putin, which he could not do, could not afford to do before the elections. The reason is that Russia had given him a hand by allowing Turkey to postpone substantial gas debts worth perhaps billions of dollars, and by wiring billions of dollars more to finance the construction of Turkey's first nuclear power plant. And so Erdogan probably felt that he was too vulnerable before the election. Now he feels less vulnerable. And we're seeing the signs of this. Another sign came at the end of Zelensky's visit when Erdogan angered the Russians by allowing Zelensky to return home with five Ukrainian commanders previously captured by Russian troops in Mariupol and transferred to Turkey as part of a prisoner swap. Mr. Erdogan had earlier promised Mr. Putin that the men would remain in Turkey until the end of the war, and the Kremlin accused him thereafter of reneging on his word. So in summary, what should we make of all of this? This is a uh, a temporary move, a, a little faint perhaps from, from Mr. Erdogan, or is this a sign of real change, do you think? I mean, it's perhaps, you know, less of a reset or a pivot than a wink toward the West, and that Erdogan sees an advantage, especially economic advantage, in making these overtures. But it remains to be seen whether they are sustainable and will translate to a better relationship with the West. But the chances of better, of substantially improved relationship with the West hinge also, among other things, on Turkey's democratic record. And in that category, things do not appear to be improving. So while Erdogan will be able to carve out a more sort of transactional relationship with the EU and especially with the US, this does not look poised to translate to a real rapprochement between Turkey and the West. After two decades in power, Erdogan has perfected the art of transactionalism. And that is why any talk of a quote-unquote return to the West is misplaced. Turkey sees itself as its own center of gravity and no longer as part of the Western bloc, but rather as an autonomous actor able to do business with whomever it wants. Thanks very much for your time, Piotr. And thank you for having me. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The war with Germany had swung into its final stages in Europe, but there were still many things to be resolved by the Allied nations. Months before the official end of the Second World War, leaders of Allied countries met in Crimea to discuss the post-war order. It had been hailed as the conference to shape tomorrow's world. And in addition to dismantling the Nazi war machine, these leaders laid the groundwork for the future international liberal framework that has persisted until today. The plans for a United Nations organization were clearly defined, and a provisional government was approved for The Charter for the United Nations enshrined what was hoped to be a universal set of values 
that would ideally spread around the world. In the charred wreckage of Europe, leaders committed for nations to be good neighbours to one another and to uphold peace and human rights. It was meant to be a fresh start based on individual freedom and tolerance, but it hasn't quite caught on everywhere. Well, the great hope was that as people got richer, that the universal values that the UN Charter enshrines, those are values like freedom of speech, individual rights, kind of basic human rights, that those values would spread as prosperity spread. Ed Carr is The Economist's deputy editor. And the worrying thing is that they haven't spread as fast as we would have hoped. So these kinds of values, you know, respect, tolerance and human rights, they're of course important things, but isn't this arguably quite a Western approach to values? Exactly, right. That's the case that China is now making really strenuously. They're saying that these sorts of values are being imposed by the West on other countries, that they are a kind of neo-imperialism, white people's values imposed by a white elite on all sorts of people who have other traditions, other interests, other concerns. And so there is a real battle going on now about how to define these things like freedom, democracy, human rights. What are these things? Are they individual rights? Are they collective rights? It's a big fight. How do we know that liberal values are being shunned? Well, there's this world values survey that's been going on since the early 80s that polls people every five years or so in lots and lots of countries and asks them how they feel about various things that correspond to these universal values. How do they feel about them? What are their priorities? What would they do? And from this survey, it becomes clear that even though the world has got immeasurably richer, there hasn't been a convergence on these universal values. It's clear that the gap, rather than closing as you'd have thought, actually appears to be widening. And how so? For instance, one thing is if you look at the attitudes of young people in rich Western countries, they're becoming more tolerant, more progressive, more individualistic, more inclined to look to self-expression. All of those things are happening really, really fast. But if you look at young people in Islamic or Orthodox countries, they are a bit more progressive than their elders, but not very much. But Ed, is that universally true, or are we seeing some countries actually converge with the West? No, it isn't universally true. These patterns are big and complex, and of course they play out differently in different countries. And one of the interesting things is that Latin American countries do seem to be converging with the West. They were traditionally quite religious and quite individualistic at the same time, and they're becoming less religious, as in fact is the United States. There are complexities within this pattern. So if some countries are moving forwards towards more liberal values and others are moving backwards, can we really call this a trend? I think you can. If you look at the distribution of countries on our interactive online, according to this survey, in the past, it was if you're like a blob. There was no discernible pattern. If you look at it today, there is something that you can sort of draw a straight line through them so that in one corner you have countries that tend to be both traditional in their views of religion and traditional in terms of their values and really quite us and them 
in the sense of the way they look at other people. So not as much tolerant. And then you can draw a line up to other countries that tend to be less religious, more inclined to think about science, more individualistic, more tolerant. So, for example, Russia is very interesting in this respect. It used to be, unsurprisingly, I think, irreligious, even though Russia's income per head grew very fast in the first years of the 21st century. It's become more religious. It's moved into a whole bunch of other countries that are both religious and have quite a strong sense of us and them. I think the explanation is, and certainly the explanation of the people who thought about what really drives this survey, is that it's not just about money. It's also about a sense of individuals' own security. And I don't mean military security here. I mean their sense that they live in a predictable, safe world, that if bad things happen, they'll be able to cope, that they're not just sort of tossed around on the chance events that destroy lives. And perhaps Russia makes sense in this context because the 1990s in Russia, after the collapse of communism, were incredibly disruptive. All the predictable things about society started to fall apart. And I think even though Russia got richer in the 21st century, there was a hangover of that time from which people felt very, very unsure about their own futures. And so, Ed, then how can countries make their people feel more secure and then in turn, hopefully favour more liberal values. So China's answer to this is interesting. China's answer is you don't need liberal values to do this. You make people feel secure because you have a strong and powerful government. And the contract, if you like, is don't ask questions about politics, don't get involved in politics, the government will look after you, we set the rules, you obey them, and everything's fine. And I don't think that really does offer security for a couple of reasons. One is that you can easily find yourself on the wrong side of the line, and it's very arbitrary and unpredictable. And the other is that in the handover of power from one leader to the next, you have enormous uncertainty. So I think that the Chinese answer really isn't satisfactory. It doesn't lead either to individual security or to security on a sort of broader scale. Instead, I think there are probably two answers to the question. One is actually that prosperity, despite the fact that it doesn't neatly map onto the sense of security in these values, it does have some role to play. I mean, rich societies are better able to cope with unexpected disasters like the pandemic. Societies are secure when they can adjust to shocks and they can deal with change. And let's face it, there's a lot of change coming, climate change, the technological change associated with AI, in some ways geopolitical tensions between China and America, all of these things are forcing themselves on the world. And how do countries cope? Well, countries that cope well leave their people feeling that they can manage, that there is security. Countries that cope badly make their people feel that these things are all really big threats. And I guess my point is that these universal values of tolerance, of debate, of listening to people of thinking scientifically. All of these things are things that help countries cope with change. One of the things I've been doing in thinking about this is looking at how individual countries moved. I mentioned Russia earlier, but you can also see on our interactive online other countries and how this entire survey maps out on these values of tolerance, independence, sense of tradition. It's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it's quite fun, actually. You can guess where different countries fall and have a tinker if you want to have a go, just like I did. The link, as always, will be in our show notes. Ed, thank you so much for coming on the show. All right, it was a great pleasure. 
one of the things that so captivates the imagination about dinosaurs was their sheer size. The bloodthirsty Tyrannosaurus rex was up to 12 meters long, half the length of a tennis court, and is thought to have weighed about seven tons. Some of the plant-eating ones were bigger still. Patagotitan Maiorum, only discovered in 2014, was 37 meters long and may have weighed 69 tons, more than 10 times the weight of an elephant. The true giants aren't land dwellers, where gravity imposes limits on how heavy an animal can grow. The real giants live in the sea. Carrie Richmond Jones is an international economics correspondent and has a knack for writing about natural history for The Economist. Their enormous bodies can be supported by the water, and the most massive animal ever to have lived is still swimming around today. It's the blue whale, which regularly tips the scales at over 100 tonnes. But now, it seems, the blue whale has a challenger. Even bigger, you say? Exactly. On August 2nd, in a paper published by Nature, by a paleontologist at the University of Pisa called Giovanni Bernucci, and his colleagues describe a newly discovered creature. It's called the Parasutus colossus. It's an extinct marine mammal believed to have lived about 40 million years ago. It may have weighed up to 340 tonnes, which would make it by far the most massive animal ever to have existed. And if they're right, that means it's more than three times the size of an average blue whale. So how did they find this thing? Where did they find this thing? The team made the discovery in the Ica Valley, an arid desert in southern Peru. They stumbled on a huge mass sticking out the ground while searching for fossils. It didn't look much like a rock. It was too heavy to be anything else. It actually broke several winches. And when they got it out, they discovered an incomplete skeleton. In total, the team found 13 vertebrae and four ribs. Working out exactly how much flesh was once attached to those bones, which is needed to determine the overall weight of the animal, is not that easy. So there's a bit of room for error in the calculations of how much it actually weighed. Lower estimates are about 85 tonnes. A lot depends on what the animal actually looked like. Did it look more like a really, really, really big manatee, which has not that much mass compared to the amount of bones that it has, in which case it would have weighed less? Or does it look more like a whale, in which case 340 tonnes would be much more like the actual figure? So we really only know then that it might have been the biggest thing to have ever lived, or do we know more about its lifestyle? Working out how something that is extinct lived is even harder than deciding just how big it is. But there are clues. The most extraordinary feature of the animal's bones is just their sheer density. All the bones that were found were unusually thick and unusually heavy, much more so than any whale swimming about today. Some lacked a medullary cavity, which is the hollow, marrow-filled section found right in the middle of most mammals' bones. These days, whales like the sperm whale or dolphins which can descend to well over a 1,000 metres, tend to have quite light skeletons. They need to be able to swim quickly and then get up from those deep dives fast. It's the animals that live in shallower waters, such as manatees, sea cows, dugongs, which have dense bones. So for that reason, the researchers think that the P. colossus, the animal that was found in Peru, was probably a creature of comparatively fertile coastal shallows. And presumably had to eat a lot out of the shallows then to stay that big. Oh, yeah. Without a jaw or any teeth to study, exactly what it ate is unclear. But we are very certain that it couldn't move that fast with bones so heavy. Scientists speculate that it was too heavy to really swim properly. It kind of wiggled its spine up and down rather than swimming with fins as a dolphin or a whale does today. That means it bounced gently along the seafloor. Even getting itself up to the surface to breathe was probably quite a lot of effort. 
it wasn't a fearsome hunter. So one theory is that it was a herbivore, munching its way through lots and lots of seagrass and seaweed. Maybe it was a filter feeder, like a modern baleen whale, straining small creatures from the water. It might even have been a scavenger, a bit like a marine vulture. Definitive answers and an update on the record books might have to wait until a more complete skeleton is discovered. Thanks very much for joining us, Carrion. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. We've got some news for you if you're a subscriber. The Economist's app now has a dedicated tab for this show and for all of our other podcasts. It's the easiest way to tune in every single day. And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, what are you waiting for? Dive into our free 30-day digital subscription by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer or just click the link in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Can supply chains be more sustainable without losing performance, efficiency, and resilience? It's possible with GEP. With strategy-managed services and AI-powered software, GEP helps hundreds of market-leading companies build sustainable supply chains that are cleaner, greener, and highly effective. Supply chains that are good for the planet and good for your business. GEP. Software. Strategy. Managed services. GEP.com.